Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Paul is writing this. Uh, I want to read to you again kind of why he wrote it um, and why we're even reading through it. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We've seen over these last several chapters why God wants it done, how he wants it done, and who he wants it done by. In in chapter 1, we see God has laid out a a specific doctrine, uh, the gospel that he once taught, that there's a specific doctrine that he desires. It can't just be anything. It is the one that he has laid out. Chapter 2, we see a specific attitude of the people of the church. The church is, is to have a specific attitude before God when they gather for worship. Chapter 3, we see the different qualifications that God has laid out for the leaders of the church, that being the elders and the deacons, that they are to have a certain character about them that is worthy of leading the sheep. Chapter 4, we see an encouragement from Paul to Timothy that he must lead a holy life so as not to bring reproach upon himself, the gospel, or God. All He must lead a holy life. Chapter 5, we saw how the church should care for widows and how the church should admonish sin, even the sin of the elders. And then here in the beginning of chapter 6, we've seen how the love of money and the desire for money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's a lot to know. Again, we didn't cover everything. Um, I'll try my very best to finish this morning. I think I will. So... um, But your big idea this morning is this, is that God expects us to protect what he has entrusted. It is an expectation of God that we protect what he has entrusted. As we'll see here in a couple verses in in Timothy, that Timothy Timothy has been entrusted with much, much like we have been entrusted with much from God. But he begins here in verse 17 kind of in a similar vein of what he's just been previously talking about in the prior verses. He starts in verse, in verse 17, he says this, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I, I, want, to, I want you to notice in this verse and also up in verse 9 that the problem is not the money. The money is not the problem. Look, look at verse 9, it says, But those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's the desire. It, it really, he, he's, he's targeting the heart problem that is taking place in these people. It, it, the money's not the problem. God created the money, and, and it's a good thing, but it can be used in such a violent and horrible way. His, his first exhortation to them is, is, to be, is to not be haughty, but who's he really talking to? Who are these people? He, he, he says there in verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age. Okay, so who is the rich? How much money do you have to make in order to be rich? What is the, what's the line? I know some, we might say the 1%, that's rich. Okay, well, it's all, let's say the 2% may be rich too. But, but I want to read from, this is from 2018, the Global Wealth Report. It says that if you just have $4,210, just have in assets in any way, you're richer than 50% of the world, $4,210. And, and 
that's, there's high school kids that have more money than that. There's middle school kids that have more money than that. And that's what's rich. That's 50% of the world. That's far below the U.S. poverty line is $4,210. So for really for all intents and purposes, we're all rich. I would say that we're all rich. Most, if not all of us, have at least $4,000. But this word haughty, that he, he, he says, don't be haughty. What does that word mean? It's this idea of being prideful, arrogant, conceited, puffed up. It's this, I want to show off my wealth. I want you to know that I have disposable income, that I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. Flaunting the wealth just to be superior to them. Very prideful way of owning and having money. See, the problem doesn't lie in anything that the person could buy. There's nothing really, there's nothing really necessarily wrong with anything that we could buy. The problem is in why we're buying it. Uh, while I was in college, uh, I was leading Young Life, and there was a girl, she really, uh, uh, other leader, she really wanted uh, an Apple Watch. And innocently, I asked the question, why do you want that? Is it for, you know, in my mind, I was thinking it for health, for convenience, for, you know, there's all kinds of things you can do. And she said, you know, you're right. I, I don't need it. And I was like, okay, hold on. I wasn't even trying to, to stop you, but she immediately caught herself in the, the only reason that I want this is because I want other people to approve of me, because I want to be part of that in-group that has all of those things. And, and, and it became a very prideful thing that she caught herself in uh, and was very, very sure that she didn't want it anymore. Um, but I think this line of thinking is very important in really anything that we buy. Why are we buying the new car? Why are we buying the new phone? Why are we buying the new whatever? Why are we, why are we buying those things? Is it because it's a need or a want, or is it because I want to show people that I have the ability to buy this thing, that I'm rich enough to own it? Why, what is the heart issue that's happening? I would say if, if we're doing that just to show off and flaunt our wealth, that there is a major heart problem taking place. Now, Paul continues in, in verse 17 by saying that Timothy should charge people not only to not be haughty, but to set the, not, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. I want to be very specific in, in emphasizing the words that he's using there in 17 when he says, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. What these people were doing in Ephesus and what we do now is we set our whole lives, we bank our whole lives and our eternities on our money. On, on our possessions. That is the end-all, be-all of our lives, is that I have enough money. They're setting everything. Think about setting your eternity, that, that maybe if I just have enough money, then that's what's going to get me into heaven. An unbelievable lie. Or maybe their line of thinking was something like this, that I'm rich, therefore God must love me. Wow, what a lie. What a lie before God and everybody else. It's one of the biggest lies of the prosperity gospel, that God wouldn't let Christians be poor. It really, being rich is, is, is far more problematic in a Christian's life than, than being poor. Because look at back at verse 9. It says, but for those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's what, which, that's what desiring to be rich does to the human heart. It plunges us into destruction. And this is exactly what Jesus challenged the rich young ruler with in Matthew 19. And from, I'm going to read from starting in verse 16. He says this, he says, And behold, 
a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't give up the possessions. It owned him. His God was money. He had put his whole hope in these riches, and he was willing to forfeit eternity for it. Another problem that the rich young ruler and really these people in Ephesus, and even us here in the United States and across the world, have, are confused about who owns what. They figured that since they had worked hard and, and put in their time and their effort, that they could have their money and they could spend it however they want because they had made good financial decisions. It's their money, after all, right? They can do whatever they want. I think the moment that we begin to look at our possessions as my money, my car, my house, my phone, my job, my business, my investments, my retirement, my family, my children, I think we begin to get in a very, very bad place, filled with pride. The problem is none of these things are ours or yours, absolutely none of them. Let me show you who owns them. Stick with me here. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Deuteronomy 10.14, behold to the Lord your God belong heaven in the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Psalm 50 verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. First Chronicles 29, 11, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Job 41, 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The owner of everything in our lives is God. We own nothing. We are merely the stewards of what God has granted us. That is it. That is the extent of what we own. And this is really where he takes us there at the end of 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. He says, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything. Now, instead of being prideful with our money, setting our hope on uncertain riches, he says to set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's the source of, of everything that we enjoy is God. Psalm 1611 is it's one of my favorite verses. Um, I found it years ago when I was still in high school. Uh, it says this, it says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I first read this verse and in my mind I, I heard, I I read that 
God has riches and they're really close to him. They're really right there next to him. Uh, right, is, like he has quick access, he can give him whatever he wants. Um, I begin to understand later that this verse has far more implications when paired with another verse. Uh, this is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, looking back at Psalm 1611, that the pleasures are his right hand forevermore, the person seated at the right hand of the throne of God is Jesus. Therefore, the pleasures forevermore are found in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. That's where they are. There is nothing besides him. He is the the founder, perfecter, and also the grantor and giver of all good pleasure. If we want true joy, we want real pleasure that is only found in Jesus Christ. That is all. Now, for those of you who are joining us this morning that do not have a personal, personal relationship with Jesus, don't know God, I just have three questions. Firstly, what have you tried? What have you tried to bring about pleasure, to bring about satisfaction, to bring about purpose, significance, importance? What is it that you've tried? Maybe it's money. Maybe you've tried to become rich, and that, that, that's the solution, that maybe if I just get enough money, then I'll be happy and I'll be set and life will be good. Or, or maybe, maybe it's possessions. Maybe if I just get the right car or the right house or the right boat, then maybe I will be set and I'll be happy and I'll be good. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or a, a spouse. Maybe that's what you feel is going to complete you and make you whole. My second question is this. Will it last? Will it be here tomorrow or next week? or five years from now, or 10 years from now, or 50 years from now? Is it guaranteed? Is it guaranteed for eternity that you will have it, that you will be eternally satisfied in it? My third question is this, is it working? Do you feel significant? Do you feel purposeful? Do you feel satisfied? Or are you still lacking? King Solomon answered those questions pretty plainly. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, I would encourage you to read 1 through, one through 9. Uh, it just kind of describes all of the things that he has. But he says this in verse 10. He says, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Complete dissatisfaction. Completely dissatisfied. Just to give you an idea of how much Solomon had, it's estimated that his final net worth at the end of his reign was somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.1 trillion. He could buy anything he wanted. He could have anything he wanted. He had hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines, hundreds of houses. He built the temple. He built pools. He built forests. He built everything that you could possibly imagine. And yet his response here at the end is, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This man had it all and yet was still dissatisfied. So to think that we can go to the earthly riches and find life or significance or purpose is 
ridiculous. But if we're willing to trust God is in charge of our salvation, that he's the one who grants salvation, I think we should also be willing to trust God with our bank accounts and our, and our monetary wealth. It says the rich shouldn't be haughty. They shouldn't set their hopes on uncertain riches. What should the rich do then? Verse 18, he answers this. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Some people have been extremely blessed with riches. Again, we've said that this has nothing to do with your salvation. There's no amount of money, there's no amount of Benjamin Franklin's that you can have that's going to get you into heaven. That's actually going to ever supply any kind of significance or happiness. But we, people who have been blessed by God with many riches can use it in a God-honoring way as good stewards of it. And how does that look like? Just what he said. By one, doing good. By two, being rich in good works. And three, being generous and ready to share. That's how. That's how we honor God with our money. What I'm not telling you to do is to tithe more. That's not the answer to this. It's not really what, it's not really what these verses are even asking. It says to do good. This seems very similar to the second one where he says be rich in good works. It seems almost identical. However, he did list them differently, which I'm inclined to think means that they're different. And what I think doing good means is living a holy life before God, one that is righteous and holy, that honors him in our actions and honors him in our money, how we use it. Holy living looks like being set apart from God, being set apart from the world, that we don't look like how the world spends their money. We don't look how the world treats other people. We don't look like how the world avoids truth and runs to fantasy. We need to use his money to honor him. Now, does this mean we can never have fun again? No, it's not what this means. We can absolutely have fun. God, he said it back there in verse 17. But on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There are wonderful things that God does for us to enjoy. Look, go outside and look. We can just go. I was just in a few weeks. I was celebrating a friend who's getting married. He's over here. Um, and we went to Norris Lake, and we got to spend, we got to spend the weekend on a lake. It was fantastic. We got to spend time in God's creation. We got to celebrate him. We got to have fun together. It was a wonderful time. That was a worthy thing of my money to go do and spend. We can have fun. We can enjoy what God has created, but we just need to be sure that our heart is clean of any pride. If the moment that we begin to think that, that my money is my money and that I can spend it however I want because I earned it and it's mine, I think we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. He continues by saying that they must be rich in good works. Be holy before God with his money, but also be rich in good works, meaning use the money, do something with it. Doesn't provide salvation, but it is an indication of the heart, about, about the faith that we do have. So if we do have faith, then, then a, a sign of it, a fruit of it, will be good works. We will have good works before God. Really, the basic command here is just to use God's money to bless other people. That's really what this means. Use it in a God-glorifying, self-denying way. And the last thing, he says, generous and ready to share. When I was in high school, my Young Life leaders would often take me to go get food. Um, and there was not one single time that I went out to eat with them that I actually got to pay. Uh, every single time they paid for me. It was the most frustrating thing ever because of my own pride that I didn't want them to pay for me. But also, 
like, just let me pay once. And they never would. And I, and I asked my young life leader, why? Why can't I pay? Why won't you let me pay for myself? And he says, because one day you're going to be a leader, you're going to be doing something, and I want you to pay for whoever you go out to lunch with. And he set the standard by which I was a young life leader. I, every time that I went to lunch with a high school kid, I paid. Every time that I go to lunch with a high school kid here at the church, I pay. Because that's the, that's the standard, that's the generosity. Because it's not my money, it's God's. And I have to use that in such a way that honors him and is generous and ready to share with others. God has entrusted people with his money. And there's, there is a correct way of using it. We're not going to be perfect. That's not, that's not the, the suggestion here is that you be perfect with God's money. I'm sure we would be using our money a whole lot differently if it, if it, was, if it was perfect. But there is a way to honor him. We can live holy, we can be rich in good works, and we can be generous with what God has given us. We should be good stewards of it always. What then is the result of this kind of giving? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19 says this, Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This type of giving, which honors God and is done in his mighty name, results in a good foundation of the future. Now, what foundation is he referring to? What future is he referring to? Is it tomorrow? Is it next week? Jesus answers these things in Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 19, he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So don't lay up treasures on, on earth. What do those look like? Filling bank accounts, owning several homes, several cars, saying, don't live for those things. Those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with those things. But why do you need them? Are you laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? What are these treasures in heaven? Really, these treasures in heaven look like holiness, godly character, obedience, conforming to who Christ is. Those are heavenly treasures. Those things cannot be taken away. Rust and moth will not destroy them. The reason he says there, he talks about rust is that the coins that they would mint, that they would, mint would eventually, if they're left out, they just rust and, and ruin, and they're useless. And so he said, don't lay them up for yourself. Don't store them, because they're going to go bad anyways. You don't get to take them with you. There's nothing on this earth that we're going to be able to see or have in heaven. There's nothing. The riches that we can lay up here really mean nothing for eternity. Paul doesn't stop there talking about a good foundation for the future. He says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. When we have our hope placed in Christ, we're driven to be humble with what Christ has given us. We also have a sealed hope in him, an eternal hope, one that cannot be taken away, one that lasts forever, and one that works. And he mentions this back in in John 10.10. Jesus says this, he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Purpose, significance found in Jesus and have it abundantly. That's where it comes from. Not only is it purpose, significance, but it's also salvation. Acts 4.12 says this, it says, and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's it. 
It's Jesus. He is the only name by which we must be saved. It is the only place of purpose, significance, and life. And it must be who we run to for life, significance, and salvation. Finally, Paul brings us to these last two verses to to appeal to his very dear friend. Starting in verse 20, he says this. He says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. There's been a deposit entrusted to Timothy. A very important deposit. What deposit? What, What is this deposit that he's gotten? The deposit is this. It's the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the deposit that he's been entrusted with. One to protect and share and give and honor God with. It is the gospel. He's been entrusted with it to protect it because it is the most important, life-altering, God-transforming truth that could ever be made is the gospel. Paul says this in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. His exhortation is to protect it. Why? Because it's under attack at all times. Evil would love to come in and destroy what the gospel really is. Every single day, the gospel is under attack. Every single moment, what God says is under attack. We've seen this from all all of history, all of the Old Testament, we can see what Satan has been doing to God's truth. Back in the very first couple chapters, we see, well, all of sin enters the world. Every sin that you could ever think of or imagine is introduced in like the first 17 chapters of the Bible. Everything that could possibly happen. In the first couple books, we see paganism begin to show up on the scene. This idea that that God's wrong and we can make gods of our own, even ourselves can be gods. That was paganism. Skip a few centuries and we get to Greek mythology, that The God that they've been talking about is wrong, and we can see God in the elements. We can see God in the things that are before us. This is God. Skip just another century or two ahead, and we get to Roman mythology, which is just Greek mythology mixed up in the same thing. Skip ahead five more centuries, and we get to Islam, which looks at Jesus and and recognizes him, yet lies about who he is and tells that, that he was just a good man that had good things to say, but he was not the son of God, and he was not God in the flesh. Skip several more centuries, we get to the 1800s, and we're met with Mormonism, which looks at Jesus and says that he's not God. They'll tell you he's God, but I promise you they don't believe that. That twist the scripture, they twist God to their own devices so that they can believe and make gods of themselves. So what then is the gospel? The gospel is this. In the beginning, God had a design for us, for the world, that he would be in perfect relationship with them, perfect communion with them, that that we would have unhindered access to God at all points in time, no matter what. Yet, Adam and Eve were deceived in the garden. They sinned, they fell, and sin into the world. Sin is anything that separates us from God. It's the thing that, that hinders our access to him, hinders our relationship to him, and severs our relationship with him 
for eternity. That's what sin does. Sin, it described in, in Romans 3.23, is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just you, it's me, it's everyone, it's Pastor Brian and Raleigh, all of us. All of us have sinned. There's no person that is, that is in beginning is in right relationship with God. No one. Then Romans 6.23 says this, for the wage of sin is death. Obviously, we're all going to physically die. That's no question. I think we're all prepared for that. But this is talking about a spiritual, eternal death in a real place called hell. The Bible teaches that that is a real place, that if we do not know God, we will spend eternity. That's the bad news. Now, on to the good news. The good news is this, that when man was no longer in communion with God, God sent his only son, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus came as a man, God in the flesh, willingly went to the cross, died in our place, took on the sin of the world, endured the wrath of God on the cross, and died. But he didn't stay dead. We don't serve a dead God. Three days later, he rose to life, conquered death, and offers eternal life, that if we would repent of our sin, turn from our sin into God, and believe and trust in him, that we might be raised to life with him. When we repent and believe in Christ, it allows us to recover and pursue the the original design that God had, the one where we have unhindered access to God. This is the deposit. This is what's so important. It must be protected at all costs. There is no variation from this that remains the gospel. We cannot add or subtract anything from what I've just told you and remain at the gospel. Mormonism would love to say that you can become a god yourself. They step into the the first temptation that Satan gives Adam and Eve in the garden, that you can be a god and they embrace it, and they live in death. Paul tells him to guard the deposit and trust to him. Avoid false teaching that people called knowledge, falsely called knowledge. It says, by doing that, someone swerved from their faith because they never knew him. They never knew him. We must know the gospel and what it really is. Because if we mess up the gospel, if we mess up God, if we mess up Jesus, then we believe in something that does not save. And we desperately need something that will save. And that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Timothy is a dear son to Paul. And I want to read a, I want to read a verse before I finish. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. He's a dear son to Paul, of which he has mentored, he has discipled him, he has raised him up in truth, and now he has entrusted him with the gospel that he would serve God rightly, much like what we should do. As you've seen, Tristan, you can trace the line of probably back several generations of how Tristan came to hear the gospel. You heard that Hunter was Jake's leader and Jake was Tristan's leader. 
That's because people were entrusting the gospel to the next person. Discipleship and sharing the gospel. And the, once you know the gospel, you've been entrusted with it to share it and proclaim it as it is. He's a model, Timothy's a model disciple, disciple maker, truth proclaimer, servant, missionary. He is the, the model by which we look at discipleship and entrusting to the gospel to people. And he finishes his letter by saying this. In the end of verse 21, he says, grace be with you. There is no greater thing that Paul could have said to finish this letter. He's spent five or six chapters now describing all the things that Timothy needs to do. All of these things that he he needs to get done, that he needs to accomplish. But ultimately, he says there, grace be with you. Because he can do all manner of things but the only thing that will sustain him, give him purpose, give him satisfaction, give him significance is Jesus Christ and the grace of God, which is the power of salvation. It grants him everything he needs and everything that we need. In conclusion, protect the gospel that God has entrusted to us. We have a, there's a gospel that, which, that is correct, that is right, that is proper, that is God-honoring, and we are entrusted to protect it and share it and give it and love those by sharing it with them. So as Paul said to Timothy in the Ephesian church, I also say to you, grace be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time that we could come and gather. I just pray that you would set our hearts and our minds on fire for your word, that we could know it, that we could, that we could rest in what you say, that we can have the gospel at the front of our minds, that we could look to you as the founder and perfecter of our faith. God, I pray that as we go from this place, we may have the power of salvation, your grace in our hearts, that we can be transformed by you daily, by the renewing of our minds. God, help us to to protect what you've entrusted to us, which is the gospel, the truth everlasting. Be with us as we go and protect us with your word. God, we love you and we praise you. And I pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.